0: All right, well we are, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Matt Larson, and we're going through a series right now called Frameworks. And our Framework series is designed to to walk through the basic realities of if this is true, so if the the scriptures are true, what are we supposed to believe about God, about Jesus, about the Bible itself, about the Holy Spirit and the church, and on and on. So we're walking through a, a doctrine series operating off of the premise that this is something that we believe to be true, that, that God is proven over time as the one and only true God, the creator of the universe. And so now we're going to explore, okay, so what do we believe about him? If he's real and true, what then do the scriptures say that we should hold to? So we've gone through a couple of weeks on, on God and his character and his nature, and now we're going to step into the person of Jesus, Now, we're going to break Jesus up into two weeks, his person and his work. Uh, The person, we're going to talk today about things like that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So we'll talk about those and the implications of that. Uh, We're going to talk about his virgin birth and his perfect, sinless life and message, just the reality of Jesus walking in perfect obedience. And then we're going to talk about how Jesus in his life fulfilled Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. And so those things are going to help us understand the the person of Jesus, his life, and what happened in that time. In a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the work of Jesus, the atonement that took place on the cross, the implications of his death, burial, and resurrection on individuals and what it means for us for salvation. So that's coming in a couple of weeks. But if you're just like, hey, you know, just get to the cross, today we're focusing on the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is. So that's a bit about where we're going to be going to start, I want to take us to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 as our kickoff uh, in this message. This is Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. And while you're turning there or looking it up on your phones, I'll say this. If you have something to take notes, I probably use about 30 or 40 different scriptures today. It's worth just kind of jotting them down because if one sticks in your head and you like, I want to go find that, I want to study that, uh, it's good to have notes just so that you can go back to it. So that, I just thought I would recommend that. All right, this is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. If you have an NIV, it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Christians or believers, or the phrase that we oftentimes use, followers of Jesus, one of the things that needs to happen in our lives is this full-blown attention given to Jesus himself. The Bible actually invites us to live a life that is focused or fixed on Jesus. We look to him, and he defines for us what is true what is real what is good and what is right if you think about what jesus said he said i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me jesus is telling us look i'm i'm the way if you want life life eternal life abundant if you want it i'm the way to it he says i am the truth Jesus is the definition of truth and all truth needs to be understood through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of truth. He says, and I am the life. He gives us an invitation to be a part of what is truly life, what it means to be human, what what it's like to know God and have a relationship with our creator, with our father in heaven. And Jesus says, I am the life, and he gives us the opportunity to step into that. And so for us to know Jesus is of critical importance. To understand him, to experience him, to have him as the central tenant and figure in our lives is key. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As we build our lives on the pattern of following him. This is from an African theologian named Michael Eaton. He writes this, he says the whole council of God is Jesus. The Bible's teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ is the biggest topic there is in this whole council of God, and it is not just a topic. Our Lord Jesus Christ is everywhere and he is involved in every section of the plan of God. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning of everything the Father is doing and the one who will bring it to its final completion. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central theme of the entire Christian faith. Jesus is kind of a big deal, and we need to understand him and know him, and so we're going to devote our time to hearing about him. Now, the way that we're breaking up this series, I'm teaching the doctrine side of it, and that we've had a different person that we've asked to come up each week. Two weeks ago, it was Kyle Rogan. Last week was Kristen Larson. This week will be Alan Kirk. Alan will be coming up after I've shared on the doctrine to speak to why this is good news. Why is this doctrine of Jesus good news for us, for the church, and for the world? So that's where this is going to go. So let's dig in. We're going to talk about the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ means that Jesus is fully God. He is fully God. And that's a really important thing for us to believe, is that Jesus is fully God. And there are a lot of differences in terms of what people believe and how they come to those conclusions, but one of them needs to be that Jesus is fully God. Now we'll pair that with the fact that Jesus is fully man, and what you'll find is that Different, either faiths or people throughout history, writers have kind of erred on one side or the other. They'll emphasize that Jesus is God. Like, yeah, he's a spiritual being, but it wouldn't be possible for him to become truly a man. And so they'll say that Jesus was God, but not man. And others will say that Jesus was man, but not, not fully God. Like if you've ever heard any of Gandhi's quotes about Jesus or what the Muslim faith teaches about Jesus, he was a good teacher and a good prophet, but not God. He's a man, but not God. And so we have this journey that we're on to actually understand what the Bible teaches about God, that at the same time, about Jesus, that at the same time, he is fully God and fully man. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. He is the exact imprint of his nature. What he's communicating is, when we saw Jesus, we saw God in the flesh. We were seeing What would it look like if God were to live a human life? Jesus. We saw it because it was God living a human life. He is the exact imprint of his nature. This is what John writes, uh, a sequence in chapter 1, John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John is establishing the word, who we'll find out is Jesus, is God. Is God. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he, talking about the word, Jesus, has made him known. When we saw Jesus, we saw God. The Bible operates under the premise that Jesus is God in the flesh, eternally existing, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is no less than God who came to humanity, and it's important to grasp that and understand that. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Jesus is God. I get it. That's not that hard to wrap my head around. But the reality is there are errors in thinking about Jesus being God. Some of the the primary ones, if you were to look at what the Mormon faith teaches about Jesus, they believe that Jesus is a created being, the brother of Lucifer, uh, who becomes Satan. So you have Jesus, Lucifer, and Satan would be, you know, they would be brothers created by God. The Jehovah's Witnesses would teach that Jesus is God's first created being. So whenever it talks about firstborn, they would talk, that, talk about that literally, that Jesus is the first creation of God and that he is not the second person of the Trinity. So those, those faiths would deviate from what the scriptures teach about Jesus, that he is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when we look at Jesus, we understand that the scriptures teach that he is God in the flesh. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. I will take a minute and explain firstborn in just a second. But it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So to say that Jesus is a created being, you might look at firstborn and say, okay, well, Jesus is the first creation, but then to say that, you would have to ignore the rest of that passage that says he created all things. Not all things except himself, all things. He is before all things, meaning he is eternally existing. Jesus never had a creation moment where he was created. That is not who he is. He is God, meaning eternally existing. Now, when we hear firstborn, just to kind of put that at rest, uh, the scriptures oftentimes will use firstborn. Sometimes they will talk about the biological birth order. You know, like if you're going through uh, David and all his brothers, David was the last born, and talk about the firstborn, and then all the rest of them, or uh, you know, of, of the tribes of Judah, the tribes of Isaac, Judah was the firstborn. Sorry, the tribes of Jacob, Judah was the firstborn, and so you'll see that. But more often than not, you'll see firstborn used to talk about uh, position, prominence. That Jesus is the supreme being in the universe is what the scriptures will talk about when it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. A theologian named David Powell says the title firstborn, therefore, points to the unique and incomparable identity of Christ. So that's the deity of Jesus. We operate on the reality that Jesus is fully God, and then we look to this idea that he is at the same time fully man. Now, there have been some heresies throughout history where people would say, okay, well, I can't really wrap my head around the Trinity, so I'll say that it was God the Father who created everything, and then he sort of morphed into God the Son, Jesus, for the 33 years that he lived on earth, and then he sort of morphs into God the Holy Spirit that kind of goes into all the people, all the places, and that's, that's Jesus, and that's God, and that's the Holy Spirit. Um, but that's, that's actually wrong. That's not proper thinking. That's not what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, and the nature of God. In fact, there's a great moment where Jesus is baptized, where we actually see Jesus going into the waters of the Jordan River. We hear the Father's voice saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we see the Spirit descending like a dove onto the person of Jesus. In the Scriptures themselves, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously represented, not in these different modes. That heresy is called modalism, in case you like to geek out on stuff. That's M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M never mind. Okay, so that is an important picture that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and to get that, we have to understand a couple of things, and one of them is the virgin birth of Jesus, maybe more appropriately termed the virgin conception of Jesus. So let's take a minute, and let's talk about this. This is from Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that's the Bible's way of keeping it PG, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. An angel appeared to Joseph, this is in verse 20, uh, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This amazing reality, it's the union of God and man. It's how God brings about this existence of a God-man, of a God becoming flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, yet existing outside of the state of sinful humanity. Galatians 4, Paul writes this, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus, being a part of humanity, was a very important part of his redemptive story. I'm going to read a couple of quotes, but as we do, I want to simplify it. And we'll say this phrase often. We've said it for 13 years as a church that Jesus lived the life that we could never live, he died the death that we deserve to die. So that we could have the life that none of us deserve to get. That's the story of Jesus in a nutshell. And this is what Wayne Grudem, a theologian, says about this. He says, Just as God had promised that the seed of woman, uh, Genesis 3.15, would ultimately destroy the serpent, so God brought it about by his own power, not through mere human effort. The virgin birth of Christ is an unmistakable reminder that salvation can never come through human effort, but must be the work of God. So it wasn't that Jesus was born and God said, oh, okay, uh, this will be my Messiah. There was a a distinct God effort to bring about Jesus born into humanity, and that's part of how we walk into this, knowing that salvation is only from God. We cannot do it on our own. Uh, Another theologian named Brandon Crowe says this. He says, The virgin birth refers to the supernatural birth of Jesus Christ, apart from the normal physical process of procreation. Instead, Jesus was uniquely conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. The virginal birth is the means by which the eternal Son of God became incarnate as fully human. He was born of Mary with a true body and reasonable soul. The virgin birth also is the means by which Jesus was born holy and sinless in distinction from all other children born naturally since Adam. Adam. Jesus was not represented by Adam when the first man sinned and is therefore not in Adam. Instead, Jesus is the head of new creation. So what we essentially have with Jesus is the beginning of new creation. That could be that term firstborn, just if it's helpful. Paul uses it that way in Corinthians to talk about Jesus being the firstborn of new creation, that he's this prototype that will set the pathway for those of us that are following him. And one of the ways that we need to understand this is through Jesus' life of perfect, sinless obedience. That Jesus walked through this life without any sin. So here's what's important is if we believe that Jesus was fully God and he enters into humanity, one of the things that we need to hold true is whatever is true about the character of God is true about the character of Jesus. And we spent the last two weeks talking about how God is without sin He is holy and righteous and pure at all times. Absolute moral purity. In him, there's no sin, there's no deceit. And if those things are true about God, and Jesus is fully God, they would have to be true about Jesus in order for the scriptures to prove true, in order for this to be consistent. And so we see a couple of places. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we'll talk about that becoming the righteousness of God more as we get to salvation and sanctification, but this idea about Jesus, that he made him, Jesus, to be sin. That's an important thing to note about what took place on the cross, that Jesus became this recipient of the sinfulness of humanity. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, Peter spent three years with Jesus, went everywhere with him. They were night and day, meals together, boat rides together, long walks on the Galilean beach together. These guys went everywhere together for three years. Now, I want you to think of the people that you spent the last week with. How often did they sin and how deceitful were they? That gets really judgy really quick, so maybe talk about yourself for just a second. Look at your own life in the last week, and how deceitful have you been, and how much sin have you carried in one week? Peter spent three years with Jesus, and he was able to confidently write to all Christendom he was without sin. In him, there was no deceit. And then John says it this way, another one of Jesus' disciples. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The Bible frequently points to this as a part of how we understand Jesus, that he is perfect in his obedience. Philippians 2, 5 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The perspective of the scriptures is that Jesus was sent into humanity by the Father, and he walked in perfect obedience to the Father. The fact is, Jesus experienced physical challenges and limitations. He took on humanity. He was, these are things that the Bible says about him, thirsty. He was hungry. He was tired. He mourned. He celebrated. He fasted. He feasted. Jesus experienced humanity in a full way. Now, for some of us, you might look at Jesus and think, well, how could he really be human? Because he never sinned. So, I mean, honestly, when we make a mistake, what do we say? I'm only human. Sometimes it feels like part of our humanity is the fact that we sin and we fall short. It's like embedded into our humanity. And maybe it's even our view of what humanity is that we are sinners. And Jesus is actually coming to show us that there's a better way. That there's a way to righteousness. There's a way to peace. There's a way to goodness. He's showing us that there is life apart from I'm only human. And so for those that struggle with Jesus and feel like there's just too big of a gap, he's perfect, I'm not, and it's not even fair because he's God, of course he's going to be righteous. The way that C.S. Lewis puts it, and C.S. Lewis wrote a massive essay on this, and I'm not going to quote the entire essay, tried to summarize it or bring it down to one small quote to help you understand it, but C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Imagine a, a mountain peak, and we're all kind of looking at this thing and thinking, okay, I want to try and, to try and summit that. I want to try and get to the top of it. And different parts of humanity, we can climb that mountain to a certain point. Our legs give out, altitude sickness, we get tired, we keep trying. Nobody's ever able to make it to the top. And we would look at that, and we would just say, okay, that, that mountain's impossible to climb. Nobody can climb it. But we've only reached a certain point. We, we gave up before ever even getting to the hard part. And what C.S. Lewis is saying, what the scriptures will often say, is that, well, actually, Jesus did some of that. He, he persevered through the same temptations that we've experienced. He persevered through the same physical limitations that we've experienced. He persevered through the same emotional betrayals that we have experienced. And he found his way to perfect obedience. He was able to summit that mountain that nobody else was able to summit. So it's not just that we would look at Jesus and say, of course, he's God and we're not. We would actually look at it and say, so that's what humanity looks like when it walks in perfect obedience. That's the picture that Jesus gives us of being fully human couple more passages on that. I think these are very cool. This is Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is like a commentary on the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, Jesus persevered and was obedient. And this was, a, this was a wild thing. The Garden of Gethsemane, it's the only moment that we know of in all of history. It's the only moment that God has let us see, and we believe that the only moment ever that the will of the Son and the will of the Father diverged. Where Jesus actually said, Not my will, but yours be done the will of the Son was different from the will of the Father. And rather than take it and run with his own will, Jesus submitted his will to the Father and demonstrated that's humanity. Perfect obedience to the Father, experiencing the fullness of the glory of God through his way, through his truth, and through his life. That's Hebrews 5. Paul writes about it in Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's talking about Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The obedience of Jesus, his perfect sinless life, it actually puts on display that Jesus was human, but living a different kind of life than what we have lived. He was showing us what we were were created for, what was intended when God made humanity to walk in right relationship with him without sin in any way tainting that relationship. Okay, so we have Jesus fully man, fully God. This is who he is. What we understand is that beyond that, The scriptures actually pointed forward to a Messiah long before Jesus ever came. An anointed one. The Old Testament, we were waiting for it. Uh, Just a a very quick Bible lesson. We'll actually study the Bible in just a little bit. But if you were to look at your Bible, uh, about two-thirds of it is what's considered the Old Testament. That's just our perspective that we would call it old. It's really the first covenant. Uh, And so that's the the picture is the first covenant or the first testament is about two-thirds of your Bible. And then the second covenant, or the new covenant, the New Testament, is about a third of your Bible. Uh, The old covenant was written over the span of about 1,500 years to 2,000 years, from Moses to Malachi, essentially, uh, is about 2,000 years, give or take. Okay, we're just talking, I'm going to talk super round numbers. You can Google fact check me all you want, and I will be wrong, I guarantee it. I'm just giving you a big picture idea, okay? You good with that? Thanks. If I tried to be accurate, here's the thing. If I try and be accurate, everybody can find some Google that's different. They'll just be like, oh, you said 1,700 years and it's (laughs) 8,000 Not that that's ever happened to me before. I just, you know, (laughs) I had a bad experience. You could say that. Okay. So big, general, round numbers. Uh, So that is how long it took to write the Old Testament. And then there was a 400-year gap. And then we pick up with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels being written. And those, the narrative starts right at, about, right at about zero, right when Jesus was born. That's actually how we go from B.C. or B.C.E. to A.D. or what's the, uh, the new one? Uh, yeah, common era, C.E. And so in that, we kind of, the, the mark was Jesus being born that transitioned history from before Jesus to after Jesus. That's what we have. And so now from Jesus forward, the New Testament was written over the span of about 100 years. From zero, from Jesus' birth to the end of Revelation, is right at about in those late 90s AD. Now, I say all this because some things were written about the Messiah, and they they were what were called prophesied, where God gave a word to individuals, and they would speak about things that were going to happen in the future, and Israel built its hope and expectation on those things being fulfilled. And So that's prophecy. Now, if you were to Google, and I say Google a lot because I know you all do it, even while I'm preaching, you're just sitting there Googling, it's what you do. But if you were to Google prophecies fulfilled in the lives of Jesus, or in the life of Jesus, you would get uh, a range of responses. Some of them get crazy where they're like, 300 prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus. This said somebody would stub their toe, and Jesus stubbed his toe, and they just, you know, they kind of like try and reach. But if you were to get to like core, prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus, where you're just like, no doubt, you're in like the 75 range where there were specific scriptures written that were absolutely fulfilled in the life of Jesus. I'm going to boil that down to seven, and we're going to talk about seven prophecies And I'm I'm pointing out these seven, not because they're of particular significance, except that they were fulfilled in his life. There were others that were fulfilled in his death, his resurrection, and the implications of that, and some still to be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. But I'm going to focus on seven that were fulfilled in his life, some that he could have control over, like he could actually do what the prophecy said by choice. We'll talk about one that says he spoke in parables. He could have chosen to do that. And then others that he had no control over, like the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. So those are things that we'll look at, and, and just to try and understand how we come to the secure conclusion that Jesus was the person that the covenant was talking about when it pointed to the Messiah. So here are seven prophecies. You can write these down. I'm just going to show you the Old Testament version, and then you can know that these were fulfilled in the New Testament. First one is Isaiah 7:14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Sorry, Diane, would you show the year gaps real quick? Just so that you see this. this is, oh, these prophecies that we're going to be looking at were written 700, 500, 520,000 years in advance of Jesus. So that's the kind of ranges that we're talking about, about these things being written and Israel waiting for their fulfillment. This one's in Isaiah. So about 700 years before Jesus was born, We have the the prophecy about a virgin birth. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him specifically Emmanuel. Okay, this next one, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This has to do with the tribe. This has to do with the location. So we're talking about Bethlehem, the location of Bethlehem producing the Messiah. Now, it would be one thing if there was a prophecy that said uh, the Messiah will come from Hong Kong, and we're talking about 35 million people each year or whatever it is, just massive numbers of people. Uh, Bethlehem, have any of you been to Tehachapi? Okay, Tehachapi is a metropolis compared to Bethlehem. I mean, this thing is tiny. It's a tiny town in the middle of Israel. This thing is a no-name place that nobody would know about. It's tiny. And so for them to say that the Messiah would come through Bethlehem is a, a pretty bold statement. And there's another one of these that we'll get to uh, in just a minute, okay, that talk about a specific location in Israel that is nothing of prominence, talking about Galilee. All right, so the next one This is from Psalm 78, 1 and 2. My people hear my teaching, listen to my words of the, the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things from of old as Israel was anticipating a Messiah, the idea of teaching in parables was part of their understanding of who they would hear from. So when Jesus teaches in parables, and he absolutely could have been like, I got to teach in parables if I want to be the Messiah. You're right. But it's also a major part of his ministry and his life that he fulfilled this prophecy. Okay, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Again, Galilee is nothing to speak of in ancient Israel. You have the Sea of Galilee, but specifically the region of Galilee where Jesus would go and do his teaching and and a major portion of his ministry— It's it's a little fishing village on a lake in Israel, yet it's been identified 700 years in advance as a place where light is going to dawn. Bethlehem, Galilee, these are things that were spoken about Jesus hundreds of years before he came on the scene. All right, this is, I'll try and pick up the pace. Isaiah 35, five and six. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find specific miracles of Jesus that are designed to show you that the things that were prophesied about the Messiah, that he would give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, uh, that he would help the mute speak and make the lame walk, those things happened in the life and ministry of Jesus in fulfillment of this prophecy. Zechariah 9:9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There is nothing special about a donkey, yet when Jesus goes to enter Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, he calls on his disciples to go and get a donkey and bring it to him, and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, this prophecy was written 520 years before Jesus came on the scene. And it talks about a king entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, have you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen a donkey before. Uh, we went to Wales just about a month and a half ago. And Rosie uh, was with us on the beach in Wales. And there were uh, a stable of horses. And you could ride these horses on the beach. And they were beautiful. And it would have been a lot of fun and all of that. But they had one donkey. And Rosie's eyes lasered in on that donkey. And she said, I want to ride that one. It had a pink bow on it. It was really cute. But but there was a big difference between the donkey and the horses. The horses were these, you know, beautiful, grand animals. And even at the same time that she was riding one, there was this kid riding on the horse and he was just looking all proud. And then Rosie was on the donkey, you know, half the size. And just, it was different. (laughs) And you have this situation where, where, again, hundreds of years before Jesus, it's prophesied that he would ride into town on a donkey. And he calls for it. He fully knew. We, when we read the triumphal entry, oh, you know that Jesus is like, Zechariah 9.9 9 is about to happen right now. Like he steps into it. He owns it. He fulfills a prophecy. And the last one, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. and says, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. You look at this prophecy, and then you look at the story of Judas. He was paid 30 pieces of silver, he tried to give it back to them, he threw it down at their feet. He went and he killed himself and was buried in the potter's field. These these things, the way that this tells the story of Judas, long before it ever happened, 500 years before it happened, and then it's just lived out in the life of Judas and the way that he betrays Jesus, it is a fascinating thing to see how these prophecies were embodied and lived out. Now, some of them somebody could have orchestrated. Many of them nobody could have. But we look at these and we just with great confidence see that the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, you might be sitting there with alarm bells going off and just saying, okay, wait, wait, wait. If all of these prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus, why couldn't Israel see it? And we see throughout the New Testament, the book of Romans, there are a few different places that will talk about how uh, Israel's heart was hard, and so they couldn't see because their heart was hard, and Israel's eyes had been covered. In fact, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul will write, Three, uh, three chapters, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 are all talking about Israel. All talking about Israel and the nature of Israel being cut off so that the Gentiles would be brought into the story and then ultimately Israel being grafted back in. It's a beautiful portrayal of how God in his sovereign hand made a way for the gospel of Jesus to go to the nations. And so it's hard for us to wrap our heads around just how obvious it feels looking back on it, you know? It's like... You watch The Sixth Sense a second time, and you're like, okay. It's like you read the Bible with Jesus as Messiah in mind, and you think, how could they not see it? But their eyes have been blinded, just like none of you knew that Bruce Willis was dead. None of you. (laughs) So that's an important part of understanding this. So uh, I'm going to bring Alan up, and he's going to talk about why this, this doctrine of Jesus is good news. So Alan, come on up.
1: that it? There it is. Uh, Well, in thinking about this series, and even just thinking about the words good news, those words for me personally have just a a renewed value, just sort of a a renewed meaning in my life after this past year. Uh, It's almost a year to the day that my wife and I got the crazy news that we were pregnant, and we've shared that story with many of you, the, the long road of infertility and uncertainty and not knowing if that day honestly would ever be a possibility for us. But I'm sharing this now because that was a Saturday that we found out. So the next day, Sunday, we were here worshiping. We were still out in the tent, and we decided ahead of time we're not going to share the news. It had been barely 24 hours. Our families didn't know. No one knew. We decided not yet. But I'll never forget that feeling, like standing there in the tent in worship, surrounded by people who loved us, who'd walked on that road with us, (laughs) And just unbearable excitement, just wanting to yell out, like, guys, you'll never guess what happened. The craziest thing has happened. And that feeling to stand there and just be so full of good news and not say something, it just felt weird. And in thinking about that moment, like, just imagine, imagine if we felt that way about the gospel consistently. And I say consistently because I think for many of us, it comes in waves. Like, there are times where life just aligns, You can feel God at work within you. You can see his work in your life. But then there's stretches where it feels like the the worries of the world are just lurking in the back of your mind, you know? Or they're in full-on attack mode, and your prayers are just scattered and reactive. You're just crying out, God, where are you? And that's actually the context I want to start with today, those times where life just feels off, where God feels distant. You know, you look at, you say, "Okay, this is what I believe about God." If you've been with us the past couple weeks, we've gone through. This is what we believe about God. You gather all that up. You say, "Okay, here's what I believe, but here's what I'm experiencing. There's a gap here, and I don't know what to do with it." And in those moments, we all face a trap. We start to let our circumstances fill that gap and reshape who we believe God to be. As we wrestle with that question, "Why would God allow me to experience this?" Whatever it is you're going through. The real question I think we're asking it's sort of buried beneath that, what kind of God would allow me to experience this? I think we start to question who He is. And this is where the person of Jesus is such good news, because when we look at Him, we see the kind of God He is. And just to reiterate a quick distinction that Matt shared earlier, the, the work of Jesus, what He accomplished on the cross, our salvation as a result of that, all of that gets its own week. So today, the question is, why is the person of Jesus good news? And I want to keep this simple because I think there's an excitement for me just in how simple this is. Jesus is good news because in him we see the steadfast love of God in action. We see a God on the move. And the more clearly we see that, the more clearly we see Jesus, the more those lies about who God is, that he's distant, that he's no longer working in our lives, all those things start to fall away. I think it's helpful here to briefly just call out, just name some of those lies. When we feel like God is distant, for some of us, it feels like he is so far above our issues. Like he has global worries on his mind. My prayer probably isn't even a blip on his radar. Maybe that's why my circumstances aren't changing. And this little lie sneaks in. Maybe you don't even have to bring that to him in prayer. But if you listen to that, that leads to loneliness. Maybe for some of you, it feels like just sort of an active frustration, like, God, are you listening? And if so, why is nothing changing? Kyle tapped into some of that frustration a couple weeks ago. And this little lie sneaks in. Maybe he doesn't actually care about your struggles as much as you thought. But if you listen to that, that leads to bitterness. Maybe for some of you, you feel like God is punishing you. There's some hidden sin you've forgotten to repent for. That's why things are this way. Or you're praying the wrong way. There's some technicality. He's not actually hearing me. All these lies start to sneak in. And honestly, they just start as whispers usually We don't pay much attention to them, but if we don't pay attention to them, they will just siphon the life out of our faith. Like these are those thorns Jesus mentions in the parable of the sower. They choke out our faith if we don't root them out. Pretty soon your faith will just be going through the motions. It's lifeless. And before long, you'll actually start to believe, maybe he's not who I thought he was after all. But is that what we see when we look at Jesus in the Gospels? If any of those lies were true... We'd expect to look at Jesus in the Gospels and see someone so busy, so focused on his mission that he just walks past the lame, the blind, the lepers, saying, the cross, like the mission I'm on is so big. It's so much bigger than you guys could imagine. I don't have time to be bothered by your illnesses. I'm sorry. Or we'd expect to see someone kind of take the long way through the city, just avoiding the sinners and the outcasts, just repelled by their unholiness. But what do we see when we look at Jesus? listen to this description Paul said. We just read this earlier. This is Philippians 2, 6, and 7. He's describing Jesus here and says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Like, this is something totally different. If you just open any gospel, pick a spot, And when you see Jesus, you'll see someone who looked on the brokenhearted of this world and his heart broke right alongside theirs. He didn't look down on sinners and outcasts repelled by them. He knelt down. He embraced them. This entire idea is expanded upon. There's an awesome book called Gentle and Lowly. And in it, the author, Dane Orland he says this. He says, The cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallen mess of the world around him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. He is drawn to us. Remember the reason Jesus was even here in the first place. Matt hinted at this. He came to live the life we failed to live, to die the death we deserved, but why? So we could be reunited with him. He came to live the life we failed to live. He willingly put himself through pain and suffering to be with us. What kind of God would do that? That's a God driven by his love to save his creation at all costs. That's what we see in Jesus. He's the rescue plan. He is the steadfast love of God in action. Just look at all that was covered today. Just notice the trajectory of God's movement. What began as Old Testament prophecies pointing to a Messiah then takes the shape of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and now his spirit resides inside of us? Like, notice that. He's getting closer and closer and closer. Our circumstances try to tell us a story of a God who is distant and uninterested in our lives. When we look at Jesus, we see a totally different story. We see the story of a God so driven by his steadfast love that even after his creation stepped away from him in the garden, he has spent the rest of history in pursuit of us, like, that's the real story. That's crazy. <laughs> when you're feeling disconnected, look at Jesus. You'll see a God who is on the move. And when God moves, he moves towards you, not away from you. But what do, we, like, what do we do with this? How do you keep this from just being knowledge bouncing around in our mind? Like, how does this flow into who we are? How does it speak into those moments when God feels distant, when your prayers are just full of, God, where are you? How does Jesus speak into those moments? And I want to point us to a psalm. We can equip ourselves for those exact moments. Uh, It's Psalm 13. I don't know if you're a a highlighter or a bookmarker, uh, but this is a good one to mark. You can make this a go-to when you feel God is distant. You can literally pray through this. It's just six verses, but David lays out such a valuable pattern of prayer here, and it points right to Jesus. Listen to this. Just listen to the tone right off the bat. How long, O Lord... These are raw words. Like, this is the voice of someone in the thick of it. You know, I think right away you see we have a license to cry out to God with our raw feelings. He wants to hear from us. But David doesn't just leave it at this. If our prayers just remain here, just unanchored, sort of lashing out to God, eventually that will turn into bitterness. But there's a foundation here. Look where David goes. This is even after crying out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Another translation says, for he has been good to me. I mean, this almost sounds like two different people, right? Like, how does a prayer that begins with, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever, somehow end with, I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me? How is that possible? Look look through these first four verses, honestly. Is there anything good in these first four verses? What good is David talking about? David is showing us the true foundation of our faith. He still cries out to God, but he's not clinging to his circumstances to be changed for his hope. His hands are open because his faith, the weight of his being, the weight of his hope, everything is resting on a foundation built on who God is. I trust in your steadfast love. His goodness, the goodness of God, is not rooted in our circumstances. It's rooted in that steadfast love. And Jesus is the visible incarnation of that love. He is that love made manifest. I love this idea. Like David first prayed these words thousands of years ago. The Messiah was just a prophecy. And we can pray these exact same words, but with the knowledge of having seen just how far that steadfast love will go in Jesus It was that love that kept God from giving up on Israel all those years in the Old Testament where they kept turning away from him and turning away from him. That same love compelled the Father to send Jesus as our rescue plan. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's that same love that drives Jesus that drove him to finish his mission through crazy pain and suffering for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. When it feels like God is distant, like he's stopped working in your life, look at Jesus. Remind yourself how costly this rescue mission was, and you can ask yourself, would a God who's invested so much to save his creation just stop to leave us suffering needlessly even for a moment? That's not what steadfast means. Remember Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord will sometimes cease for only short periods of time, so just hang tight. No, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Constant, dedicated, unwavering. He is a God driven to action by his love. That's what we see in Jesus, and that's true even in those moments when you can't hear, feel, or see it. If we had more time, we could, we could fully unpack where David goes after, I trust in your steadfast love. Just briefly, look at how rich it becomes. I rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Trust turns into rejoicing, into singing to God, even in those dark moments. Like, this psalm is all in the same moment. I don't know where you are in that path. If you're able to sing to God in the dark moments of life, you've got to sing loud. Like, we need that in this room week to week, to look down the aisle and see someone who we know is in the midst of suffering and yet proclaiming the goodness of God in worship. Like, that's a genuine witness. Like, that changes you to see that. We need that in this room. The world needs that. People so full of hope that they enter into the broken places and it just spills out of them. It feels weird to not say something. People to enter into their own broken homes, their own broken marriages and say, there is hope for this. That's what we need. But if you're not there, if your mind is just scattered, the worries of the world are there, just feels like God is distant. That first step, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fill your vision with who he is. Jump into the gospels. Remind yourself of who he is. Because before long, you'll be able to say, I I don't know why my circumstances are the way they are. I don't get it. But I know him, and I trust in his steadfast love. I love the chorus of this old hymn, and I'll, I'll close with this. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that in you our hope is secure, Father. We know that we can rest in it because that foundation is strong and will never be moved. And, Father, I pray that that hope can just sink into our hearts today, that we can be so full that even as we leave here and face the worries, they're just bombarded by whatever's coming at us this week, Father. That hope can break through. It can be the filter through which we see everything. We can enter into whatever brokenness there is and say there's hope for this. Father, let that be true of us. And for anyone who's feeling that, that just suffering, just in the midst of something difficult, Father, I pray that the the lows of their losses, the depth of their suffering, all of that can be matched by the depths of your grace, Father. Let them see that even as as low as they feel, that even there your love reaches them, they can experience you in a way they would never have been able to experience had they not walked through that suffering. Father, let that be true. Let them experience your redemption today. Father, we thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.